I'd like to show you why knowing your why is the start of your journey. Without a strong why, it can be so difficult to reach your maximum potential. My name is Dr. Jason Ballara, and every week I meet with real estate investors and mindset specialists that are taking action in order to build a life according to their own terms. We will break down what drives successful people and allows them to achieve at such a high level. If you are a professional wanting to break through, or simply someone that wants to hear an inspiring story, the Know Your Why podcast is made for you. Hi everyone, I'm Jason Ballara and this is the Know Your Why podcast. Uh, today I'm here with Jeremy Johnson. Uh, Jeremy secured his first business license before he was old enough to drink, and so he is no stranger to starting and scaling businesses. Um, Jeremy, I think the, the best way to proceed is to just sort of let you tell us your story, uh, but thank you for coming on the podcast today. I'm, I'm glad to be here, Jason. I appreciate you having me. Uh, so kind of the quickest way to tell my story, I was raised by a single mom I'm from Philly. Um, and my mom, who's from that generation, work, you know, go to school, get good grades and work. And I was pretty much on that path, was never a stellar student. Um, I, I, I tell people I went to school more for social activity uh, than scholastic achievement. Um, and then when I was 20 years old, I was in college. I was working two jobs, so pretty much kind of on that path that we've been um, groomed to be on. And it just a series of events happened all at one time. <clears throat> so first, I um, resigned from a job. I was working in a mental hospital, and they asked people to work overtime. Um, so there was like a higher-up mandate, like you're not supposed to work overtime, but then they were so, so short-staffed that my immediate supervisor asked me to come in, came in. She tried to vouch for me, but it was like, no, you knew what the, the mandate was. So I just resigned rather than get fired. So that happened. And then my car blew a head gasket. So now I have no car and no job. And I had no way to get back and forth to school. So I had to withdraw. So it's just literally stuck in my apartment, living off my credit cards. And you can only imagine how that went for me. Um, and I had nothing to do. I literally had nothing to do. So bored. Um, and this is back in the MySpace days, kind of putting a date on things, um, that I read a book and it was called The Richest Man in Babylon. And then I read another book and it was called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I literally read them back to back within a matter of like two weeks, uh, changed my life. I realized like, hey, this whole work for someone else into your retirement age, this is for the birds. And, and that's pretty much, that was my out. I read those two books and then I went and got my business license within like the next 30 days. I just realized I've got to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it seems like almost everybody has that, you know, kind of aha moment of, you know, whether it's because you get hit with a bunch of negative things and you're like, I'm just going to, you know, turn this into a positive or whatever it is, right. Some, some life-changing event that makes you uh, kind of decide things have to be different. So, so after you got that business license, kind of what, what happened from there? What was, what was the next steps in your journey? So um, my original business license was in artist management. I actually wanted to be in uh, like music and entertainment. Um, and even though obviously I'm not in that now, what I learned even during that was I actually learned, that's when I learned uh, contractual law. I learned how to read contracts. I, and then I would go on to, you know, uh, nightlife and concert promotion. So I learned marketing and promotion on that, on that end. Um, so kind of like learning, even though I ultimately that business failed because I was not able to manage an artist that went on to be successful. 
Um, the building blocks and the things that I learned from that venture actually set me up to where I am today. So I, I ran that business, was doing, you know, club events, uh, whenever um, concerts would come to town, I would, I would help promote those. And then the fallout of 2008 happened. And I just went onto a poverty street until I decided to join the military. And I used to tell people I did not join for patriotic reasons. I joined because I was broke. I was literally 30 days before I, I was in boots. 30 days prior, I was sleeping on the couch. Okay. And so then you joined the military and what, uh, what branch of the service? Army. Army. And how long were you, were you in the army? Or are you I was still in the army? Uh, uh, eight years. So I joined, I came in, um, deployed with, within six months of me getting to my first unit. I was boots on ground in Afghanistan. I did that. Um, I did, uh, I came in as weapons repair, switched over to military intelligence and it just by happenstance, I happened to run into an officer, two officers were actually talking about real estate. At that point, I had been married. I was actually actively going through a divorce. Um, <clears throat> and I just bought my first house, like my actual house that I was living in. It was a four-bedroom house. And so I heard these two guys talking about real estate. And I was, you know, it, it just intrigued me. I tell people I literally had no pre-existing interest in real estate whatsoever. It's just the way that they were discussing it uh, really intrigued me. And uh, two, three minutes later, I talked to one of the guys. I pulled him over to the side. As you know, I explained to him, "Hey, I'm going through this divorce. No wife, no kids. You know, I just bought this four-bedroom house." And he just listened intently. He said, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. "He said, are you running out your rooms?" I'm like, "Nah, I'm trying to get back on the market. I need to be comfortable so I can entertain these women." Uh, and all he said was, "You're leaving money on the table. Rent out your rooms." And I said, okay. And I tell people that was literally the yes that changed my life. Because had I told him that I couldn't do it or came up with some other excuse, he would have, you know, shook my hand, wished me well, and walked off. And I know that because that's what I do to people now. I'm going to agree with you. If you think that you can't do it, I'm going to agree and wish you well. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's a great point. I, I think that the, that, that mentality of, of just taking the first step and, and, you know, as you said, like, you got your house you wanted to have you wanted to have your space and sort of i think most people get stuck in that right they're like no i don't i don't want to have roommates right that's that's inconvenient and not you know that's not cool i want to have my friends over and and, and lots of extra rooms and and whatnot but just just a simple thing as house hacking and renting out those rooms can really sort of be rocket fuel to getting your getting your life going started whatever it is getting on your way to financial freedom and investing and all of that so um obviously you know taking that first step is is huge and and Agreed. i i think you're 100 right if someone says oh i can't do that probably they're not going to do the more than that that it might take so exactly. I, it's, it's kind of like you know it, the, the path isn't it's not a mystery right it's not like this isn't some secret recipe or like like, you know, you don't have to read hieroglyphics to learn how to invest in real estate and get rich. It's just, you just have to be willing to put in the work and the time. So um, that's great. So you started with the house hack and then um, you kind of, where did you go from there? What, what was the, the next part of your journey? So I saved up, I was doing that for about a year and then a, a wholesaler reached out to me um, and he said, I have this two bedroom house, needs very little work. Um, you know, I think we ended up agreeing, I still remember the dollar amount, $18,350 for a house that just needed what, what, what we call, you know, cosmetic lipstick, mm -hmm. paint, carpet, that type of thing. And so I bought it. And I didn't even, and here's the other part, it's important because a lot of people, 
they'll see the money that they have in their account. They can't, this is literally how we're groomed to, 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 to um, buy things. If we don't have the money, then we assume that we, we can't afford it and we'll keep it moving. Uh, I did not have the money. I only had 10,000. I went to the bank on the lunch break and took out a personal loan, which I don't necessarily recommend in hindsight, but it was all I knew, all I had access to at the time. Took out a personal loan for the other 10. I bought the property and I um, used the money from my room rentals to, to do the renovations and I only need about $3,000 worth of renovations. So I went from renting out rooms to now I have my first rental property that's cash flowing. I refinanced it. But another, the next property was way worse. It was $5,000 for a reason. They had stolen, it was literally stolen everything out of this house to include the kitchen sink. Yeah, to include the kitchen sink. So we had to do like electrical, plumbing, like everything in this house. So I bought it for five thousand. Let me give you the numbers. So I'm, I'm into this first house for 21, right? 18,000 on the purchase, 3,000 on the renovations. I refinanced it, the bank gave me 30. So I had 30, I bought. I bought the next property for $5,000, renovated it for $13,000. Um, and then I paid back the original $10,000 loan, leaving me with $2,000 left over, which I used to buy a truck and a trailer because I hate waiting for people to deliver my materials. Good, good. Um, I, I hope people listen to that little part and like replay it over and over again, because it's a very, what you did is, is a very viable strategy to, to anyone. You may not get a house for five thousand dollars at this point, but the but the the strategy is the same, right? It's just mm -hmm. you know, kind of get one, use that one to, to get the next one, and just and it like will, knocking over dominoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, and and this is all right around you. This was local. You're, you said you're in Philly. No, originally from Philly, but I'm in uh, I'm based out of Augusta, Georgia now. Okay, okay. So it's it's all from uh, right around you in Augusta, then. Correct. Okay. Great. So at that point, what, what time frame? What year are we? I know you said you were in military for eight years. Are we? Talking are we like, 2016. Okay. All right. And so um, from there, did you just kind of keep that, keep going with that, buying more uh, of these, you know, small multifamilies, or where did you, where did you go at that point? So from the time I bought my first rental property to the time I bought the second one, so buy, renovate, rent out buy, renovate, rent out, um, refi, um, literally from end to end, that was only six months. So my first six months of actually owning property, I own two. And then I did whatever investor did. I ran out of money. So then that's when I got into wholesaling. But then I realized long-term wholesaling, I don't actually own any assets. And really wholesaling is replacing one job with another. Yeah. It's being taxed at the same earned income rate. You're, you're not actually, uh, you don't hold on to any actual assets. It's very active income. Um, but so what I did is I pivoted and I started an investment firm where I did for others what I was doing for myself, which is building a rental portfolio. So I would take their money, I would help them find the property, we would fix the property, and we would manage it. And what my investment firm really did was made buying real estate or owning a portfolio as hands-off as buying stock. Okay. So would you say that you were sort of acting as a uh... You, you were creating turnkey rentals for people. Is that kind of correct? Okay. I, I mean, I know there are, I guess, a number of companies that do that sort of same strategy, which which is a great one. It makes it uh, easy for the people that, you know, you can be, I don't know, semi-active <laughs> investor <laughs> in that situation. You're not completely hands-off, but you're not uh, doing doing the heavy lifting of, of running the renovations and all of that. So that's a, it's a great strategy too for, for people to, to get. I mean, really, it's just a matter of, 
you, you've already touched on three different, you know, house hack, burr, and then, uh, you know, the, the turnkey rental. So there's, there's already three different strategies that people could use any number of them. Well, and you said wholesaling, right? So four, right, yeah. four different things. And, and as you mentioned, wholesaling is a bit more transactional. So it's, it's, it is a job, but it can potentially net you, you know, chunks of money that you can then use and put into, uh, your, your rental portfolio. Um, okay. So then what was, what was your next move? Next move actually happened January of last year. So January of 2020, I realized my end goal is to build, uh, rebuild communities. And I wasn't going to do that with building rental portfolios because, you know, people typically don't take care of rental properties the way that they would, uh, something that they, you know, like homeowners and, without making renters seem like they're some type of bad category, it's not, it's just human nature. And the, the question I ask people, I'll say, when's the last time you washed a rental car? None of us do. We don't take care of what we rent the same way as what we own. And rental properties don't tend to appreciate the same way that homeowner. So I knew, hey, I want to build neighborhoods. So we slowly pivoted away from doing, building rental portfolios, actually at this point, completely out of a portfolio building. Uh, to go more into the community development piece. So that's where you're working with your local uh, city leadership. You're finding out how you can acquire land at a low enough rate where you can um, put some, put a lot of properties on the ground at the same time instead of one at a time. Gotcha. Okay. And so now, now that you're doing, how, are you building to sell, building to rent? What's, what's your strategy with that? Building to sell, absolutely. Because again, you've got to you've got to start to turn people into homeowners if you're going to actually improve the neighborhood yeah. and get you know once you're a homeowner, you're actually vested in. You care more about what happens in it because you're tied to it. Like thirty year mortgage is a, is a right. pretty right. Uh, you know a pretty solid anchor. Okay, how are you kind of so? I know I know you're uh, you're working to sort of build communities and and maybe talk a little bit about your, your strategy behind that. How, how are you kind of making it affordable and, and, and allowing people to, to have that, you know, to realize the dream of homeownership and, 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 you know, there's always that struggle between like, okay, we, we want to make affordable housing. Also, we need to make some money as the investors or the builders or whatever it is. So sometimes it seems like those sides almost butt heads, but what are you doing to kind of marry the two? Great question. So the first thing is I look for a problem. I look for a problem that we can solve, obviously, through real estate. Um, you have to make, and I'm, I'm very candid even with the community, because when you're doing community development, hopefully a lot of them, uh, developers don't do this, but you should. And I would encourage every developer, if you're going to go into a community, even if you're going to help have a community meeting, find out what they feel the problems are, and then you can, you know, put that on the table. Hey, this is the piece that we can help you solve. So going back to finding the problem, and then you're working with your local leadership to include your um, economic development committee, to include your housing and community development, housing authority, these, um, these agencies, because they have programs in place, and they have the ability to um, structure acquisition, at the very least, definitely acquisition. Every, every major City has a land bank of some kind. So if you can at least acquire the land at a reasonable 
price that allows you to, because construction costs are going to be construction costs. doesn't matter where you're building it. Yeah. Um, so if you can acquire the land at, at a price that's going to allow you to actually build and also keep it affordable, relatively speaking. Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. So, so I get, maybe, maybe I'll make sure I'm understanding. So you're, you're able to acquire the land from the city itself. Like parcels they already own and they're essentially trying to incentivize development there and so they're they're making it uh less expensive for you to buy the land and then you know you come in and the, and the actual development costs are what they are correct correct that's a very cool strategy i i i would assume some of that is through like tax incentives and things like that for absolutely absolutely so ideally this is how it should be done but you have <clears throat> excuse me some municipalities that kind of don't do it the, every city has a city administrator, a city planner who says, this is how the city should be set up. Industry, uh, the industri industrial area is gonna be over here, residential, college town, medical district, all of these type of things, right? And when one part of the city becomes blighted as it always does, right? It's kind of hard to keep everything fresh and vibrant because they have a small stipend of money, you know? So what they do is should do, create incentive plans so that private, uh, development can come in and actually carry it out. So they just come up with the, hey, this is what we would like done. And then it's up to you and me uh, and other investors and developers to actually carry it out. And so it becomes a win-win for everyone involved. The community wins, the city wins, the investors win. Yeah, I love that. That's a great, that's a great strategy. So are you, is, are you doing this in Augusta? Yes, so in Augusta, and then we have another development opportunity that I'm involved in, in Virginia. Okay. All right. So what does, at this point, what does your portfolio look like? How, how uh, have these been developed yet? Or are you sort of in the process? What's, what's kind of, where are you in, in the, that, you know, sort of phase? So in the, the development in Augusta, we've already targeted a particular subdivision, 156 parcels. I think out of those, maybe 40, 45 are still being actually lived in. Um, so most of the community, it's, it's, uh, the pendulum hasn't quite swung, which is why we start with a problem. If we see a problem there, we can definitely solve that problem. Um, so what we actually did is we, so we stopped managing other investors' portfolios. We got rid of that. Uh, we helped them either sell theirs, their portfolio, I mean, you know, the assets that they wanted to sell off. And then we switched them over to a different management company because we didn't want to leave them high and dry. Um, and then out of our rental, actually company held uh, portfolio, we sold off a lot of our properties, actually closed on one today. Um, so sold off a, a lot of our properties so that we can focus on uh, acquiring land. That's the big play. Obviously you can't build without land. So um, we just won another lot through the city auction um, <clears throat> last week. So that's, you know, we're coming in from the developer side, you want to start, it's just like Monopoly. You want to start of buying your lots first before you build, because once the community sees, or once you know they see that that the building is happening, then it's going to drive up the actual price. If you're trying to buy it from private owners, and then so which it sounds bad, right? So it sounds like oh well, you're just trying to get the the, the properties they're cheap. In reality, if the private owner uh, wants too much for the property, one of two things is going to happen. Either A, you buy it at a high price, and then what you build on it, it's, not, it's no longer going to be affordable for the, you know, the average person, or B, um, no one's going to pay the high price, and so that 
that property remains in a blighted or undeveloped state. Either way, the community suffers. So as, as, you, know, as you mentioned earlier, we've got to be able to, to implement a process that, that allows us to solve a problem um, profitably. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very common sort of conundrum that people are in, in terms of whether it's development or renovation or however it works, even, even you know, in the multifamily space, it's like, you, you want to, you want to serve the community, you want to serve the, the tenants, uh, give them a good place to live. Doing those things cost money. If things cost money, rents go up, you know what I mean? It's like this, this really difficult balance to strike. So I, I uh, commend you for, you know, sort of figuring out a strategy for that. It's, it's great. And I, I think that makes sense. And I, I, you know, I think, I don't know, I feel like sometimes people think that, um, money just comes out of thin air in that when it, when it comes to, you know, we want, we want nice roads and schools and things like that. And it's like, well, but, but we don't want to pay more taxes. There's just a whole, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff. So it's kind of, uh, it's always interesting to me to hear people's strategies about figuring out that problem, right? Like it's just, it, because I think it's a problem everywhere. It's a problem in Augusta, Georgia, I'm in Los Angeles. It's a problem here. Like it's it's affordability is a, is a problem everywhere. Um, so that's that's very cool. And I think um, you know, sort of working with the city to acquire that land and, and start at a, a low base. And are you are these empty lots? Or are these are there people? Their houses there? How are you kind of? Uh, maybe it's a mix. I'm not sure. It's a mix. It's definitely a mix. So whenever you go into a blighted community, you're going to get a mix. That's just you're going to get a mix. But as you know, demolition doesn't cost too much, just depending on how big the structure is. These houses were built in the 1950s concrete block. Uh, most of them are under 1,100 square feet. So even if they need to be torn down, it's not going to cost a ton of money. Right. But even that money still needs to be factored in when it comes to structuring and making sure we're acquiring the land at such a price that we can do the, the demolition. Uh, and again, built in the 1950s, which means that you have to account for even asbestos treatment while demolishing the property. That's the other thing, you know, so you got to factor in all of that. Um, and then going back to what you were saying about how I think that people, I mean, just in money in general, we're really not taught how it works and how to make it work for us, but only taught how to work for it. Um, but uh, part of doing your community outreach or your community meetings before you start breaking ground and building anything in a community, you've got to educate them. That's part of your presentation is educating them. Hey, yes, this has to make money. I'm not going to hide my hands on that. This has to make money in order for me to stay in business in order to help redevelop the next community. So yes, we, we do have to buy it at such a price that we can put our money into it um, and still make enough money to roll this over to the next community. Yeah. What are you doing for that? I mean, when you, in order to educate and, and do that outreach, how, how do you, uh, how do you approach that? What's maybe some good practices? I, I feel like, cause I feel like that's a, a thing that anyone could use, right? Like someone, someone acquires a new, um, whether it's you know land or they require acquire a, a multifamily property, whatever it is, you wanna you wanna go in there and and make that good presentation, right? To the to people mm -hmm. that are living there currently, and so what what are you doing to achieve that? And and you know try to <laughs> there's probably always going to be some animosity, but but how do you kind of balance that out? So. We are no, right? Real estate investing is a local sport. So you've got to get boots on the ground. 
you've got to find out before who there every neighborhood has a someone who's just actively involved in the community someone who's probably been there 20 30 40 years who knows everyone or knows key leaders that they can put you into contact with so my first thing is to find who is the influential person whether it's a politician or not most times it's not it's just going to be a person who actually has a vested interest because they may have lived in there the you know 30 40 years so their house is paid off and they actually so we're finding that's the first step we're finding who are the, the key people in this community can we have one-on-ones or can we take them out to lunch can we explain to them what we're looking to do can we and we need information from them because you're nine times out of ten you're not going to be the first person to come in and look at it see the opportunity to solve a problem so we've got to figure out well who's been here before why didn't it work what are you looking for we're looking more for feedback than we are to make a speech and to tell them what we want to do. First step is hearing them out. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great uh, a great point. So, you know, almost like asking the question, what what do you want to you know what do you need what do you want to see here to make this exactly. a better that's place? That's the exact question that I ask. Yeah. Okay. I like I like that. I, I think, like I said, I, I mean, I sort of keep m- mentioning multifamily because that's that's what I'm doing, but I I do. I have asked that question of tenants, like, okay, well, what, you know, if you're not happy with current management, you're not happy with what, what would make you happy. And I, I think, you know, trying to, to do the best we can as, as the owners to, to solve those problems, as you said, or, you know, just, just make life better for those residents. And again, knowing that, you know, some, some of that costs money, so there has to be some balance, but it's, um, I think that's an important thing for people to take into consideration when you, when you go in on a new acquisition, not thinking about, you know, sort of the current population, the current population of residents is probably not a very good strategy, right? You don't want to go in and just make everyone mad. You know, that's not, that's not going to end in, in uh, good community um, will, or, you know, potentially may hurt your business plan too. So I, I think it, it, could, it could potentially be a lose-lose, whereas taking those considerations in, uh, you can create, you know, as you mentioned, win, win, win. So um, no, that, that's really cool. I, I like that. There, there's an additional piece to that. Your ability to, uh, your leverage, part of your leverage when you're presenting to the city about what you're, what you're looking to do, because at the community, you know, if you're doing, um, you're doing single family and even just depending on how many units, if you're doing, you know, uh, apartments, there's a lot that you kind of do without really any type of um, crossing paths with the political um, uh, team that's in that municipality. But when you get community buy-in, mind you, political leaders want to be reelected. So when you get community buy-in, you you not only tell them, hey, this is what we're looking to do, this is what they want done. So if you value being an elected official, you might want to help us get this done and then make sure that it's transparent. So if things don't go, I'm not, I'm more than willing put it this way, I'm more than willing that if there is a political leader who's unwilling uh, for whatever reason to not go along with what's best for the community and what's best for the development project, I'm, I, I can't make that person see it my way, but I can definitely make sure that everyone knows that this is the albatross that's stopping us from making progress. Yeah, I mean, just holding people accountable. Right. It's that's like, exactly it. It's not a threat. It's literally just this. Like if you, you know, it's very easy to be um, an impediment behind closed doors. But if you, if you're strong, if you really feel this strongly about 
not allowing this solution to come to help this. Now, mind you, especially if that person, that political person doesn't live in the community, which means you're not affected one way or the other, mm-hmm. right? So you're just digging your, your feet in the hill, uh, digging your heels in, you know, cool, just understand we're going to make sure that everyone knows that you're the reason why. And, you know, good luck during re-elections. Yeah. And it, I, I'm assuming this is more, when you're talking about elected officials and things like that, you're really talking at a very local level, right? Because yes. probably like the, the, the governor of Georgia isn't involved in what you're doing yeah. in Augusta, right? This, this is like the, the you know, city the council. officials of Augusta, city council, yeah, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, just, just having the conversations and I think having the backing of the community, then the, really then it's just like, there's, it's not like, it's not your story against their story. Like we're trying to do what the community wants and needs. You should probably, you know, endorse that. So it, exactly. Exactly. Now I will say this, let me, let me, let me um, chase it with this. It's been my experience that you're, you're I haven't typically dealt with too many, um, too many community leaders, political or non-political, um, who are opposed to progress as a whole when you address it, when you put it out in the open, not like, hey, I've already came up with my, my site plans and everything like that, and I, I'm trying to sell them on my agenda. But when you actually come in and you lead uh, asking for feedback, I haven't really uh, received a lot of pushback that way. What you will run into is not the individual commissioner or council person who's trying to dig in, it's outdated and archaic rules and, uh, you know, development guidelines that that are not beneficial to today's market, today's environment, today's, I mean, even, you know, uh, the the average median income, it's just not conducive to that. So that's the challenge that you, is that though the elected officials are trying to follow rules that, that really are not helpful. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Local, you know, lo- local building codes and things like that. I think exactly are often antiquated. Or <laughs> what I found in the in the construction I've been involved in is is it's uh, they all have a different interpretation of those rules. And so that's a whole conversation. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, right, right. We <laughs> that could be an entirely different podcast topic. But they, but yeah, like they, you'll get one inspector that says one one thing and, and says, oh, this is okay. The next one comes in is like, you can't do that. Or, you know, but, so it's uh yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a fun game to navigate when you're, <laughs> when you're in construction, but um, no, that's very cool. Um, I love, I love kind of everything about what you're, you know, this strategy, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, Jeremy, let's, let's shift gears a little bit and we'll go to uh, I'd like to ask everybody a few questions. So um, <laughs> kind of shift to that. And um, the first one has to do with the, the, title of the podcast, which is Know Your Why. So um, I'd love it if you could kind of, I know, I feel like we've probably touched on some of those topics, um, but I'd love it if you could really kind of let us know what what your why is, what drives you and motivates you. My drive, I would tell people, um, if Malcolm X was a real estate developer, you would end up with me. So if you understand the history of this country, obviously it was built on slavery, but the way slavery is taught is taught as a as a civil issue. It was more of an economic issue. It was an issue where um, people who look like me were enriching people who look like you. And so, in order to close the gap, one of two things has to happen: 
we can either get reparations and it doesn't look like that's ever going to happen, or we've got to reposition ourselves where we start to own land and own businesses and actually own our communities and own sign the front of our paychecks. That's the only way you're going to close the wealth gap between ourselves and others. And it's actually, some people get offended by that, but it's actually better for society as, as a whole if every demographic is taking responsibility for their economic position. So my why is closing that wealth gap that I, you know, I didn't, I wasn't there when it was being created, but I understand how to close it using the tools of real estate. Yeah, no, that, I mean, that's awesome. I, I think, I feel it is, <laughs> everything you're saying is undeniable, right? I, I think it's, um, without getting to digging in too crazy on, you know, some of that, uh, some of that uh, terrible history, I guess, of the US. I, and I wish it was only history and not still going on. But I, I think, yeah, I, I think that the way to close that wealth gap is, is ownership, right? Like that's, that's exactly how it needs to be. And uh, I, I think, yeah, I, <laughs> I won't get into a whole discussion of white privilege, but it, I, it does exist. Yes, it, it exists. exists. It exists. So, and, so, and and I, and that's it. so it's, it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with, uh, with me versus them. It's a me versus this problem. Right. Me versus this problem. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in, it is in the system. Right. And it's like, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I thought, I thought that term white privilege had to do with having money. And I, I grew up without money. We were, we were poor kids, also single mother. Like uh, she took care of me and my brother. We, we didn't have any money. So it, I thought that that's what it meant. And I assume that's probably what a lot of people think, but I, I in reality, I, I, I know better now uh, that, you know, maybe the opportunities are not equal for, uh, as you said, people that, that look like you and me. So I, I would love to see that. I would love to see that change. So um yeah, I'm sure we could talk for <laughs> talk for hours on this topic, but um, but yeah, I, th I think you're 100 right. So that's but but I do agree. O ownership, you know, uh, is is the really probably the key to closing that to closing any wealth gap. Realistically, like if if you're whatever demographic and you're and you're poor and you're and you're you know sort of living in that that space, then you've got to. The way to get out is to to own it, whether it's to own the business or own the the, the property or whatever it is. So I, I think uh, that it's a great um, a great goal to have, you know, in in terms of uh, allowing communities to be responsible for themselves through ownership. Absolutely agree. Yeah, great. Um, so the, the next question is uh, maybe tell us something. I guess a little bit more lighthearted. Tell us something about yourself that, that people don't know, whether that's a, a hobby or a special skill or something um, something that maybe isn't common knowledge about yourself. Uh, well, my friends would know this, but my favorite food, I know this is going to sound weird, favorite food in the whole entire world. I could eat it every day. In fact, I just had a minute before we started this episode, peanut butter and jelly. You would think nothing, that nothing if, wrong if, with peanut butter and jelly. I if love you it. have money and that type of thing. You, your taste, <laughs> you grow steak and filet mignon. No, peanut butter and jelly. Like I am, but it's actually symbolic of how I am as a person. No matter how much income I make or anything like that, I'm very, um, I just very simple. Very simple. I, I I blame part of that on the military. I mean, if you, anyone who's who's deployed, especially 
there are days you're going to go without showering. It's just the normal thing. And no one complains. No one, it's just like our norm. So um, being able to navigate that space, even uh, in this new role and this new assignment, the, these resources, I can still operate with very minimal uh, resources and still accomplish. Yeah, I think that that stays with you. Absolutely. If, 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 if you grow up that way, uh, you know, I was not in the military, but I, you know, we, I think we have similar backgrounds in terms of at least you know, economic standing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it stays with you. And, and it's, it's not hard for me to sort of live like that. Right. Yes. Not, yes. I don't want, I don't want that for my family. Right. Like that's exactly that's well, like well, we can do life. it. Like we've been it. We... Right. For me, I don't care. I can sleep <laughs> on the floor, on the couch. I don't need, I can eat peanut butter and jelly every, like it, it's really true. I, I and I, um, <laughs> my, I mean, my favorite thing is pizza. I had some pizza before we, you know what I mean? It's just kind of like <laughs> simple stuff, right? I, I don't, yeah, you know, I don't need to change me to, to look like I have more money. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. So yeah, totally with you. And, uh, and I also enjoy a good peanut, peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, do you put the peanut butter and jelly on the same piece of bread or two different breads and put them together? Two different breads, but here's the twist. I can actually eat, I like it so much, I can eat it without the bread. I literally just put a glob of peanut butter and a glob of jelly, and I would just take a, take the spoon and a little peanut butter, a little jelly, and just eat it that way. It's the weirdest thing ever. I'm, I'm very cautious about who I eat, eat it around that way. You know, sometimes I don't even want the bread, but I know I'm around people who are going to think I'm weird, so I just get the bread. Right, right. Yeah, I... I don't know that I've ever done it off of bread, but I I feel very strongly there's only one right white right what one right way to make the peanut butter jelly that's peanut butter on one side, jelly on the other side, and put them together. But so yeah, it's illegal to do it any other way. Since you since you brought that up, I, I wanted to know the answer. Um, so we'll put we'll put whatever you want in the show notes. But what's the way, uh, best way for people to reach out to you um, when they hear this and they they want to kind of connect? Uh, definitely social media. So Instagram uh, at the letter J Johnson says S A Y S. So J Johnson says on Instagram. Uh, if you want to reach out to me via uh, email, um, Jeremy Johnson at vetted gains G A I N S dot com. Okay. All right. And we'll have we'll have that in the show notes. All right, uh, Jeremy. Last last question um, before we get going is, what what advice would you give to someone that is maybe Early, earlier in their journey than you are, you know, sort of trying to get started and, and uh, what, what would you tell them to sort of help motivate them or, or let, uh, you know, push them to move forward? Look for the simple solution. I think one of the problems that we have is we think that the solution has got to be as big as the problem when that's not the case. Like if you need to lose 50 pounds, people think, okay, I need to do crash diet. I need to do this, that, and the other. And it literally could be as simple as, hey, let me go for a morning walk. And let me go for an evening walk. Look for the simple solution. And, and that's no matter. If, but if, if we're talking real estate specific, I would definitely say learn real estate based on solving a problem. Everything else. So we, we don't look for properties first. We don't look. We look for a problem. We talk to people. And then we figure out what's the best way to structure a deal to acquire and develop the property. But start with the problem. Can I solve a problem using real estate? If the answer is no, then move on to another area or somewhere, but a problem first and foremost, not to, to make money, 
They're printing more money every day and you're not going to be able to take any of it with you. Solve a problem. That's where you're going to make your difference. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Look, look to solve a problem. Um, it seems your screen has frozen. Uh, I can still hear you just fine, but it, <laughs> it does seem like your screen has frozen, which is, which is fine. Um, we're, we're actually, that's the, the last question for you. So Jeremy, th thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you for your service. Uh, and I, I really appreciate, you know, everything that you, that you shared with us today. Oh. seems like we have lost you all right well luckily we got to hear his uh closing comments um so thank you everyone for uh listening and until next time have a good one